Good morning, church family. Good to be with you. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. I'm going to invite you to stand as I read our text for this morning. It is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 through chapter 11, verse 1. It's on page 958 in the Pew Bible. And as you flip there, this is Paul kind of wrapping up a section of chapters 8, 9, and 10 where he's talking about Christian liberty and freedom and how we live that out as we love others. So come with me here to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Lord, would you help this text to stir us with a greater affection for you and ability to walk with you. Lord, use this morning gathering for us, Lord, to remind us that our lives are lived on purpose, to bring you glory to love neighbor and to advance the gospel. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, you may have a seat. This morning, really the big idea that I want to camp on for a bit as we close out this section of 1 Corinthians is that we are called as followers of Jesus to live for the glory of God, the good of neighbor, and the advancement of the gospel. If you've been around Park for a while, you probably have heard me pray this often. It has really shaped my thinking that our entire life as Christ followers are for the glory of God, the good of neighbor, and the advancement of the gospel, the, the proclamation of the gospel, and the growth of the good news, the building of the church and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so I don't think Christians would really disagree with that. If you are here and you're a non-Christian this morning checking out the church, I, I hope that you get an idea of why we exist, why we do what we do, and what our purpose and our call is. But this is true for all Christians, and I don't think Christians would disagree with it. Like, who's going to say, no, my life isn't for the glory of God, right? Who's going to say, no, I'm not called to love neighbor? And who among us is going to say, I, I, I don't care about the advancement of the gospel, or at least I know I'm supposed to be a part of it. That's why I've given to missionaries going around the world for years and years and years, right? We know deep down that this is our call, but I think these phrases become kind of vague to us, do they not? Like, the glory of God. What does that even mean? How many times have you in church and in Christian circles heard people say like, oh, glory be to God, and you're like, what, is, what does that mean? Or, I, it's all for God's glory, what does that mean? What, what do you mean by that? What, is, what does that tangibly look like to live your life for the glory of God? Or the good of neighbor, right? We, we know Jesus calls us to love neighbor. There's so many parables, so many teachings, so many examples in the scriptures of Jesus modeling and teaching us to love neighbor. But if we're honest with our own life, and as we, as we look at the state of the world and the state of the church, even in America, 
loving neighbor can become kind of subjective, doesn't it? Or selective. Like, I'll love my neighbor in this way. I don't know that I feel comfortable loving them in that way. I, I, I will go down this road to show love and care for my neighbor, but I'm not sure that I can go into that environment or that I can adopt that philosophy or that I can even engage that conversation with them to show them love. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. And then, again, the advancement of the gospel. I think the history for, for many people in the church and, and for some of the church, I should say, in America, like this idea of advancement of the gospel, it, it, it's been really well-funded and really well-supported when it's pastors leading churches and missionaries going into different cultures and contexts. But for the individual, everyday Christian to think that my role, my purpose is to advance the kingdom of God in my place of work, in my neighborhood. It's for me to live as a cross-cultural missionary in the spheres of influence and relationship that God has given me. I think that's a harder one. That's why for so many years, so much money has been given through the church. And it's amazing the generosity of God's people. But generally speaking, and I've had conversations with many Christians, it's easier to give money for somebody else to go tell someone about Jesus than it is for you to walk across the street or the cubicle to tell somebody about Jesus, right? And so this is our big idea. We live, all of our life is lived to the glory of God, the good of neighbor, and the advancement of the gospel, but this gets vague and hard to understand. And so as we wrap up this section of this letter to the church in Corinth, chapters 8, 9, and 10, they, they really have to do with, Paul is kind of crystallizing in and focusing in on this idea of living for God's glory, the good of neighbor, and the advancement of the gospel. And as we wrap up the section, I just want to ask us five questions that will help us to actually flush this out a little bit. To kind of take this, this vague idea of the glory of God, the good of neighbor, and the advancement of the gospel from, from this kind of mystical or, or not very practical realm into the very practical, everyday, you and I asking these questions of ourselves and one another to actually help us live this out. These questions come from a book called Authentic Church, and I, and I think they're good to reflect on here as we wind down our section of scripture for today. And so Paul, if you remember, in the first, uh, in chapter 8, he is addressing the church. There, in the, in the church in, first, in the first century in Corinth, there's a segment of people who really love knowledge, they love intellect, and, and they know the scriptures, they know their theology, they know their Old Testament, they know that Jesus came to set them free from the law, and they know that they can eat meat sacrificed to idols. That, that idols are, are just things created by human hands, that they're animated by demons, but God owns all things. God, Yahweh, is above all things. And so they know because God created all things and because God has power over all things, because God is over other spiritual beings, I can eat meat, sacrifice to idols. They, they have this knowledge, this deeper knowledge, right? And there's this argument in the church about people who have deeper knowledge and people who are weaker. And the people with the deeper, greater knowledge are looking down on the people who, who don't have that knowledge yet. And Paul says, you with the greater knowledge, you need to lay down your liberty. Lay down your ability. Lay down your right to eat meat sacrificed to idols for the sake of growth of the weaker, younger Christian. So that's chapter 8. And then in chapter 9, he gives example of how he does this. He's not willing to take payment from the church because he knows that it will give in to one of their idols. They wanted an impressive pastor who ran in the social circles and the intellectual circles of Corinth. And, and he's saying, if I take payment from you, 
you are then going to, to, to find pride in your pastor. You're going to find pride in your leadership. And I don't want you to find pride in the flesh because the cross of Jesus Christ is foolishness to the perishing world. And it's weakness to the power hungry. And so I want to demonstrate and model for you foolishness and weakness in the gospel, not give in to your idol of power and success. That's chapter 9. And then chapter 10, last week we looked at allegiance to God. Remember, the, look at it with me here, the first part of chapter 10, verse 6. Paul says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And he gives us some Old Testament examples about how God brought discipline and judgment to people who worshipped idols and then sought the evil desires of their flesh. Look at verse 11. He says, Now these things happen to them as an example, but they're written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. These stories are here to, to remind us, to warn us, to push us towards fidelity to, to Yahweh, faithfulness to Jesus Christ, allegiance to him. And, this, and then this bends out into loving neighbor, which is what the end of chapter 10 deals with, loving neighbor. And so again, these five questions that will help us to actually practically do this. When you're in that place, trying to figure out, like, how, how, how do we make decisions in life? How do you make decisions in life? Oftentimes, Google, right? In the last two years, there's been a lot of decision-making off, off Google. So-and-so recommends masking. Well, let me do a little Google research and figure out who agrees and who disagrees. So-and-so recommends vaccinations. Let me do a little Google research and figure out who supports that, who doesn't support that. So-and-so recommends quarantining or social distancing. Let me do a little Google research. Let me listen to some podcasts. Let me listen to some articles and figure out what I think about that. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about taking a new job. Maybe you have some good mentors, some good people who, who you wrestle that through with. Now, oftentimes our decision making is, is it's focused on us and what's best for us and our needs. And then it's influenced by all these other sources. And here in this passage, Paul is going to help us Understand how to make decisions in all of life that help us to glorify God, love neighbor, and advance the gospel. So the first question that we need to ask when we're faced with decisions related to conscience, related to spiritual life, related to all of life, the first question is, does the Bible allow it? Right? If you are a Christian, and if you're not a Christian, you, need to, you should probably think through how do you make decisions? What is your guiding light in decision-making. As a Christian, we need to start with this question, does the Bible allow it? If it's no, then we have our answer, don't do it, right? Simple as that. If it's yes, that doesn't necessarily mean do it, it means we have to ask more questions. Now, I want to pause before we move on to the next question and, and just acknowledge the reality that the Bible does not engage everything, right? The Bible is not a manual telling you all the things that are allowed and all the things that are not allowed. There are clear commands in Scripture. Do this, don't do that. And so when we see clear commands in Scripture, do this, don't do that, we have our answer. If the Bible says don't do it, we ought not to do it. If the Bible says do it, we have the freedom or the liberty to do it. And that's what Paul is dealing with here in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. The Bible doesn't have a... Have a have a, if the Bible doesn't condemn it, you may have the liberty to do it, but you have to ask more questions. Now, again, there's, there's areas outside of the Bible that are just common wisdom, right? Like the Bible doesn't tell you if you should brush your teeth. 
You don't need the Bible as a manual to decide, should I brush my teeth or not? I don't know what to do. God didn't address that in the scriptures, right? Common wisdom, modern medicine, modern science will tell you, brush your teeth. There's a ton of areas like this in life where the Bible doesn't necessarily engage modern issues, but there are principles in the scriptures which will help guide you, and then you look around and say, what's best practice? What is common wisdom? What is science? What is history? What, do the, what, what does the research in this field tell me? All right, so when we're in an area outside of the Bible, that's some of the ways that we do it. But if the Bible says no, we don't do it. If the Bible says yes, we continue to ask questions, all right? And the next question that leads us to is, does my conscience allow it? Does my conscience allow it? That is really what Paul is getting at here in in chapters 8 through 10 as we bring the last couple weeks to a close here at the end of chapter 10. Remember, he's been talking about an issue of conscience. He also addresses this in Romans chapter 14. And, And the book of Galatians deals with this too, that there is a different level of conscience among Christians. There's a different level of conviction. In this setting, in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, it's related to meat sacrificed to idols. Some Christians have a, have a conscience that allows them to eat this meat. They understand the dynamics at play, and for them, eating meat that has been sacrificed to a pagan idol does not hurt their spiritual life. It does not sear their conscience. They have the freedom and the ability to do it. For others in this church, in this setting, they, some of the new Christians who came out of pagan temple worship, their conscience doesn't allow them to do it, at least at this stage of their spiritual walk with Jesus. Because they formerly worshipped at the temples, they formerly worshipped where, where these animals were being sacrificed to pagan gods. For them to eat that meat, it, it entangles the worship of demonic powers and the worship of false gods, the worship of idols, with the worship of Yahweh, of Jesus Christ, and the power of his Holy Spirit. They can't untangle that. And so in this setting, that's what the church is dealing with. You have groups of people who have different conscience around different things. And so we must ask, okay, if the Bible allows it, that's one thing. Next, does my conscience allow it? There may be things that are allowed biblically, which you know for you, your weakness, your temptation, your history, your background, even though it's allowable in Scripture, my conscience doesn't allow me to do it. There's some kind of guilt or or shame or or, or pattern of life that that I know I need to stay away from that thing because it's not good for me. And so we keep asking these questions, right? Does my conscience allow it? If the answer to that is a no, don't do it. Abstain. And if the answer to that is a yes, that still doesn't mean free pass to do what you want. The next question that we ask ourselves is, what effect does it have on my life? How does this impact me? And, and originally, it, and where I got this from, they say spiritual life. But, but I want to think about it a little bit more holistically than your spiritual life. Because all of life is intertwined, right? If it's not good for your physical life, it probably has a negative effect on your spiritual life. So if the Bible allows it, if your conscience allows it, the next question is, what effect does it have on my life? Holistically speaking, and this is what Paul is getting at here, verse 23, he says, All things are lawful. Another translation says, all things are permissible, but not all things are helpful. Not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. 
there are certain things that if we partake in these things, they may actually hinder or hurt our walk with Jesus. So just because the Bible allows something and just because your conscience allows it, you need to say, what does it do to my life? Spiritually speaking, does it help or hinder my walk with Jesus? Physically, does it help me to, to, to be holistically healthy in mind, body, and soul? And these things are connected, right? You know, when your body isn't doing well because of choices of your own, usually your soul is also suffering. When your mind isn't doing well because of choices of your own, because you're, you're numbing your mind with watching shows or scrolling social media or listening to too many voices, it affects your soul. And so as we walk through these questions, does the Bible allow it, yes or no? Does my conscience allow it, yes or no? And what effect does it have on my life? I think we should, as followers of Jesus, be assessing everything that we do with that question. I've told you a hundred times I'm a huge baseball fan. I've noticed every April, and, and there's a tension for me because it's right around Easter, right? Like the pinnacle of Christian worship, although every Sunday is Easter. He is risen. Amen! We celebrated that one day, but it's true every day of our lives. But I feel this tension every year around Easter because it's the beginning of the baseball season. And I'm a huge fantasy baseball guy. I stay, I stay in contact with 20 of my college friends and roommates through fantasy baseball. It is our portal for connection and relationship with each other. Most of us live in different states now. We don't call each other up and just say, hey, how's it going, man? We, we like text each other about baseball, and that usually leads to, hey, how's your family? How are your kids? How's your job? How's your life? How's your faith? Baseball is like the connection for us. And so it's a good thing for me. I love baseball, and also having this fantasy baseball outlet is a good thing for me, mostly, but every year around Easter, I feel this tension because the season is starting, and we've just had our fantasy baseball draft, and my mind is consumed with how can I beat all of my college friends. And, 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 and I feel its effect on my spiritual life. If I'm not careful, if I'm not disciplined, if I don't, if I was telling one of my mentors a couple of weeks ago that one morning I got up to have my devotional time with God and, and I'm really trying to pursue intimacy with Jesus. And so I got up at 5.30 and I, I, I cracked open my Bible and I wanted to spend some time with the Lord, but then I grabbed my phone. I was like, I gotta see how the games ended last night. And it wrecked my day. And so... Baseball is a good thing. The Bible allows it. My conscience allows it. But my conscience needs parameters. It has a negative effect on my life holistically, spiritually speaking. Also, my relationship with my wife and my children and other people that I care about if it doesn't have parameters. So that's part of the question that we have to continue to ask. Spiritual health is far more important than us exercising our spiritual freedoms. Right? And so it's not just a matter of, am, am I able to do it or not? But is it good for me? And that's actually not the main point that Paul is making here. It's very important for us to keep in mind, is, is this permissible, but is it beneficial? Right? That's what he's asking. And it's good for us to ask that question about ourselves. But Paul's main point goes into the next question. He's others-focused. He wants us to ask, what effect does it have on the life of other Christians in my sphere of influence? That's Paul's entire aim in chapters 8, 9, and 10. 
There's certain things that the Bible allows and doesn't allow. There's certain gray areas. There's nuance that you have to figure out. There's, there's difference of conscience and conviction within different churches and different spheres. These things have an effect on our own life. But ultimately, Paul's major concern in how he wants Christians to live is others-focused. He wants our attention to be outward, saying, if I do this thing, how does it affect other Christians? And specifically in my sphere of influence. I don't want to get away from this because in this context, Paul is writing a letter to the church in Corinth, an embodied community of people doing life together. And so Paul's primary concern is how your exercise of your rights or your liberties or your freedoms, how it affects those that you're doing life with. There is a global church, a global Christianity, which has been even more globalized by the internet, right, and social media. And so we, we need to zoom out a little bit and say, how does my, you know, my social media presence affect other Christians in the world? But ultimately, I want to zoom it back down because I think as a people over the last few years, we've, we've expanded maybe too much. Maybe we think about Christianity too globally in one sense, and I'm not saying we shouldn't think about it globally. We're going to talk about that in a minute, the advancement of the gospel, right? But sometimes I think we, we, can, we can miss the trees for the forest, right? You've heard this phrase, don't, don't miss the forest for the trees, meaning that sometimes you get zoomed in on the details and you miss the big glorious picture. But it, it can be reversed as well, right? Sometimes... You're, you're looking at the big picture and you forget the, the beauty of the tree in front of you. And I think part of the tension that we've felt in the church over the last couple of years is that we, we don't have a deeply rooted commitment to an embodied local group of people. We might be more concerned about our, our social media impact as a Christian than we are about how it impacts the person in the pew next to us how it impacts the person in our community group that we gather with week in and week out. We, we, we might find a, an author or a writer in a different city who has the same convictions as us, and we're like, yes, I, I want those convictions. The, the weird people in my community group, they all think differently. I like how this person over here in Seattle thinks. And it's like, but Paul is writing to an embodied group of people, saying how you live your life has an impact on the people that you live your life with. And so therefore, your decision-making process ought to have in front of it, how will this impact the people that I do life with? The people who I know. The people who know me. The people who, when they watch me live my life, they take their cues from me for good or bad. We all have a relational sphere of influence, and Paul wants us to consider that. Remember this question, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And he's told us in chapter 8, verse 1, when he started this section, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He's concerned about the church of Jesus Christ, the local embodied church of Jesus Christ being built up in love, in care, in laying down our rights for the sake of another. That you may have the right to do something, you may have, even have the right interpretation of something, but it, if it causes another Christian in your sphere of influence, specifically in your embodied community, if it causes them to stumble, if it weakens their faith, if it causes them to question who Jesus is, if it, if it, if it doesn't build them up, then we must be willing to lay down that right, to lay down that freedom. 
if it hurts their spiritual life or hinders their walk with Jesus, then we have to be willing to say no. Even though I can do it, I'm not going to do it in their presence or in their hearing or in their observation or maybe even at all. If it helps their spiritual life, and again, not even spiritual life, but just holistically their life, right? Then do it. And then there's this neutral area, right? Where it's just hard, it's gray. And that's, that's kind of what Paul is engaging here. This neutral gray area, there's a tension that takes knowing the people that you're doing life with or the individual person that you're concerned about or praying for or walking through life with. This all implies that we're in discipling relationships. What's a discipling relationship? It's a relationship where you're doing life with another person. You're talking about Jesus. You're bearing each other's burdens. You're praying together. You're being honest with each other. And so it implies that we're doing life with each other, that we're known. We don't have to conform to the comforts, idols, and hollow traditions of others. So one of the tensions that we have to wrestle through is like church tradition has, has a lot of things that really have nothing to do with the state of our soul and how we're doing in our spiritual life. Like some people may, some people may be offended with a certain dress code in a church building and they may spiritualize it and make you feel like you can't wear a hat to church because it hinders them from worshiping Jesus. I don't think that's the case. I think there's probably a religious tradition there that has to be worked through, right? And so there's some tensions here. There's some nuance where we have to actually get to know the person. We have to have the hard conversations. We need to know how to, how, how to care for others and what it looks like to walk through life with other people. But here's the overarching idea. Love is more important than knowledge or freedom to do what we want. And so as we consider this decision-making process, we have to consider what does it look like for me to love others. Look at the end of this chapter. Paul says, I do not mean your conscience, but his, verse 29. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? And, and the second part of that verse, right, some people read that and they think, yeah, my liberty shouldn't be determined by their conscience. They should grow up. Paul is rhetorically turning that, he's actually, that's what he's teaching, our liberty is determined by the conscience of the Christians that we do life with. That's our concern. How can I build them up? How can I encourage their faith? And then from there, there's one more question that we have to ask, and that is, what effect does it have on non-Christians in my sphere of influence? So actually, we ought to be concerned about how we build up the church even more so than how we engage with non-believers, Right? We need to live an evangelistic, outward-focused life. But if you can't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're not willing to lay down your liberties, your rights, your freedoms for the sake of a weaker, struggling brother or sister in Christ, how in the world are you actually going to love a non-Christian in the way of Jesus? That's what Paul is getting at here. He's saying, look at, look at your church community and consider that. And then consider the non-believer and what type of impact this has. When you go into temples and eat meat sacrificed to idols, what does that communicate to the pagans who are worshiping false gods? I love verse 31. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Right? This is, hopefully it's helping to land the plane. What does it mean to do all to the glory of God? It means 
whether you eat or drink. If you have a different conscience about certain foods and certain drinks, and remember in the context here, it's about food sacrifice to idols, but this hopefully expands our vision of what it means to glorify God. What does it mean to glorify God? All things when they're done out of a Christ-like love for others. Go to a baseball game with some friends and glorify God. Go to a golf course with some friends and glorify God. Go to an orchestra with some friends and glorify God. Go out to dinner and, and meals and drinks with friends and neighbors and glorify God. Asking yourselves these questions. Am I doing what the Bible allows how is this impacting my own spiritual life and my life holistically? How is this impacting the Christians that I'm doing life with and, and what kind of effect does this have on non-believers? And again, there's a tension here with this last question, right? It takes knowing the person or the people that you're, that you're doing life with that are in your sphere of influence. I've heard a handful of um, people say that they were really intrigued they were more intrigued by the Bible when a pastor had a beer with them because they just assumed that pastors were stuffy and they couldn't have fun. And then I've heard other people say that seeing a pastor have a beer was a big stumbling block for them. Or a Christian, right? And so the tension here is that you have to get to know the people that you're doing life with. You have to try and understand what, what are their temptations, what are their idols, what are their struggles, and how can I embody the ethic and the way of Jesus among them? Paul goes on at the end of the chapter here. He says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Be careful that you're not offending willy-nilly the religious establishment and those bound by religious rules. Work through that with them. Talk through that with them. Be careful that you're not offending the, the pagans who are new to Jesus or who are interested in Jesus, the Greeks. Talk through life with them. Get to know them. Get to know their idols, their temptations, their struggles. And give no offense to the church of God, to the people whom you do life with. It says, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage. And what a striking statement. Not seeking my own advantage. Church, let's keep coming back to that, saying, God, God, how do we put others first? As it says in Philippians chapter 2, not not seeking our own needs, our own interests, but considering others' interests more significant than our own. In our decision-making, in our, in our figuring out how to glorify God and to love neighbor and to advance his kingdom, we must say, am I seeking my own advantage or am I seeking the advantage of another? And he says, but that of many that they may be saved. Here's the advancement of the gospel piece. This all comes together so that we could be a witness to our risen Savior who laid down his life on our behalf. Paul closes out by saying, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Again, what a striking statement. He is living his life in such a way that he's willing to say, if you live your life the way that I'm living it, you will become more like Jesus. Why? Because he has his eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's not trying to impart a certain perspective, a certain opinion. He's not trying to protect a certain right. He's not seeking his own advantage. And where did he get that from, church family? From Jesus. The one who did not 
count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but laid down his life, taking on the form and the nature of a servant. And so as we gather at Park Community Church, we want to come back to the person in the work of Jesus. The one who did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but laid down his life. Considering what we need to have spiritual health and life with God more important than his own physical life. I'm going to pray, and the worship team is going to come back up and just lead us into a song. And, and I want you to just sit where you're at for a moment and spend some time with the Lord as you take communion. If you are a follower of Jesus, these elements are here to remind you of who Jesus is and what he's done. The cracker represents his body given for you. A perfect life lived in your place and a sacrificial death on your behalf. The cup represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. So if you are a follower of Jesus, these elements are here to remind you of who he is and what he's done. And I'm going to pray and then want you to just sit for a moment and take communion when you feel led and ready as the worship team plays. And then we'll stand and sing the gospel together. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. Lord, may we do all things to the glory of God. Lord, would you break down the sacred secular divide that keeps some of us handicapped with our life? Lord, may you expand our understanding of what it means to live for your glory, for the good of neighbor and the advancement of your gospel. May you instruct us. And Lord, I pray that you would nourish us now as we take communion, remembering who you are and what you've done. We love you, Lord Jesus. Have your way in us. Amen.